All right, have a seat. If you've got Bibles, uh, you can open them up. Uh, we're going to be in Romans 1. If you don't have a Bible, uh, there'll be some people that will come down the aisle here in just a second. Just raise your hand as you see them come by, and, and they'd be happy to get you a Bible. But we've been in the book of Romans uh, for the last four weeks. We've been doing an introduction to the book of Romans. We did four weeks on an introduction, and I promise you we're not going to be moving that slow uh, through the book of Romans. I remember when I first came to know the Lord, <coughs> uh, the pastor of the church I was a part of, I think he took six years to teach the book of Romans. I think that's what it was. So I promise you, I won't be taking uh, six years. I'll be taking five and a half, but um, <clears throat> really excited about that. Well, let me let me kind of give you an idea of where we're, where we're going to go today. Um, whenever you understand the book of Romans, one of the things that you have to understand is, is who wrote the letter. Now, across the board, almost nobody disagrees who wrote it. You see it right at the very front. It's kind of a Greek way, a, a, a Roman way of writing a letter. They would start off with the person that sent it, so they don't say, Dear Aunt Susie, and then go off and, you know, write their letter, and you have to wait till their name at the very end. The name of the person that wrote it was right at the very front. Now, I think in almost anybody that's been around the church for a while, and maybe even if you're not a follower of Jesus, and you're kind of learning this whole church thing, you start to learn that this guy, Paul, is pretty important to this whole Jesus uh, reality of, of following him and, and the role that Paul played in kind of advancing the gospel that ended up spreading around the world. But I think sometimes we miss some of the less known characters that are part of this story. And so one of the people that I want to talk about with you today, just as we kind of head off into our journey in the book of Romans, is a lady named Phoebe. Now you find her at the very end. So if you got your Bibles, you can see her in Romans 16. But some of the things that we learn about Phoebe is that she's, uh, she's uniquely one that's commended. So we'll talk about what does that mean. She's a sister, meaning she's a, a, an integral part of that local church. She's definitely a follower of Jesus. She's a daughter of the King of Kings. She's a servant of the church in San Korea, which means that she probably was a deaconess within that local church. She was one that, because she was commended, was somebody that they were to welcome, they were to help her along, is that one of the things we learn about here, because of that different language, and I would actually take this view, and different people have this view. Again, others don't. But I think the person that actually delivered the letter that Paul wrote was this lady, Phoebe. Now, what's so crazy about that is, is can you imagine? Now, just we now think of the book of Romans as like the, the, the climax of Paul's writing, the greatest letter he ever wrote. And if all of a sudden you could transport back into that time and Paul looked at you and said, could you take this to the city of Rome? I don't know how many of you I'd be like, oh, my goodness, no. Can you choose somebody else? But Phoebe got the letter. Now, in getting this letter, what that meant is to be the one that was commended. Again, that's why we kind of think this was the case. She was one that when Paul, who had authority as this, this, this apostle, was handing it off to her, and with this letter in hand, she now carried authority to come to this church, and she was to now, then probably she was the one that was to then announce the letter over this particular group of people. And in fact, probably the people that would carry these letters with them, they wouldn't just carry them, but on their way there, they would memorize these letters because they would then hand the letter to the people that were sitting there, and they would then recite the letter from memory out over this group of people. And so again, if you could just imagine being Phoebe, here she is carrying this letter, memorizing it probably on her way to Rome, and then she gets to Rome. Now, I was trying to imagine what would it been like at that particular point at somewhat most people believe the height of the Roman Empire. Nero is the emperor at this particular point. He's the one that's transforming in many ways along great 
levels, I would say, even in comparison to Julius and Augustus and these different Caesars that we know about. But she would have walked in, and in walking into this particular town, she would have walked into the greatest city of that particular time. She would have walked past all kinds of different things that we now look out as these, you know, things from the past, but these great monuments that kind of testify to the greatness of Rome, the, the reality of this Caesar and this empire that was so great that was supposed to bring so many things. I mean, this Caesar that was called the Kurios, the Lord, and that's kind of the reference we give to Jesus, the, the Lord, as he was viewed as Lord of, of all of his empire. In fact, they would worship him as such. And this empire was to be the empire of all empires that was going to bring peace to the world. In other words, everything that you have longed for as a human, this empire was going to bring to you. And here's Phoebe with a letter that's about ready to say something different. She would have walked in, and in the midst of walking in, she would have had a gospel. We know that. She would have an announcement about a different kurios, a different Lord, a different message of hope that wasn't contained in it. Phoebe was a woman, we know this, of probably affluence. In fact, we find out, and if I could go back to that verse in 16.2, she was a patron of Paul, meaning she had money, she had capacity and ability. But in walking to this particular town, she didn't walk up into the high hills of Rome. She could have. That's where the wealthy people lived. But instead, she walked down into the, to the floor of Rome and in, into this area, which would have been the river bottom of probably the Tiber, not where the affluent lived and the wealthy and those that were able to bring great influence over the empire. But instead, here comes this woman of privilege who could have been there carrying a letter that was opposite of what everything that the Roman Empire believed, walking into this group of people. What's nutty also about the church in Rome, there was probably only about a hundred of them. It wasn't this huge mega church that was sitting there. There was no building. There was nothing that they were to go to. In fact, she would have showed up and in showing up in this particular city, probably would have been going to about five, maybe six or seven house churches to deliver this letter to the leaders that were there, the men that were leading the church. And she would have walked into them. And you just know this, probably because of everything we understand, the moment that she came into town, people would have said, Paul's letter is here. Amongst this little small community, we've got Paul's letter. Now, this letter is important to this group of people. You've got to understand this. I think sometimes we look at these letters and we treat it kind of like it's a systematic theology text that we're reading. But man, Paul is writing a letter to a group of people. Some of them he knew really well. Some of them he didn't know at all. And he's writing to them. And in, in so many ways, there were Jews that were there. There were Gentiles or the Romans, the, the, the Greeks. Paul even references them. They were all hanging out in this local church and things weren't going very well. In fact, the Jewish people who had just been kicked out about five years before by the Emperor Claudius were just returning back to Rome at that particular moment and things were probably chaotic and all over the place. They were probably waiting for this letter to come in that was going to allow them to have courage and strength in the midst of trying to come back into this culture in which at many moment Nero could end up kicking the Jews out again. The Romans were probably also sitting there saying, what in the world are we going to do? And in comes this letter, and in comes Phoebe. Now, I've always wanted to be in certain places, but can you imagine the first house church that she walked into and all the people sitting there wondering what she's going to say, and she more than likely handed the letter to the leaders, whoever they were, the men that were within that local church, and she stepped back, 
And she began to then recite the letter over the people. It would have sounded something like this, and I'm going to read it to you in Greek. We don't know if it's exactly like this, but let me just, just listen to this for a second. She would have said, Palas doulas, Christu aisu, Kletos apostolas, aphorismenos es evangelion theu. In other words, she would have said, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, to be an apostle set apart for the gospel of God, and then off she would have gone. And here are all these people sitting there wondering, what's Paul going to say? They were hopeful. They wanted words to tell them everything was going to be okay. And we know this because we've been studying it out. He then announces to them, why is everything going to be okay? Because Jesus Christ born of the seed of David. For those of you that are Jewish sitting in this room, they would have, they would have sat there and said, oh, there he is. The long-awaited Messiah has arrived. And he's not just any long-awaited Messiah. He's also the king of the world because he rose from the grave. He defeated not only sin, but he defeated death. Everything is going to be okay. And Paul, his herald, his apostle, is coming into our city and he's announcing through this woman, Phoebe probably, announcing over all of the people, King Jesus reigns over all things. He is king of kings and lord of lords. All is going to be good. Now, it's interesting, at this particular moment, after finding this out, he would have also said to her, she would have also said to them, but it's a message that's unique. It's a message. This message of King Jesus changes lives. Now, this is so important. I feel like so often the way we treat Jesus is just a quick escape reality from hell where we we buy into him because we don't want to go to hell. And trust me, I don't want anybody to go to hell. And there are ramifications for denying Jesus Christ. And so if you're sitting here today and you don't know Jesus, I want you to know there is a ramification for denying the King of kings and the Lord of lords. You will enter into a permanent shame forever, experiencing the wrath of God. This is one reality that we have to face in that. But that is not a sufficient reality for embracing Jesus. It is not just about the escape of hell. It is about the King. It is about Him and knowing Him and loving Him and following Him. Everything that the Bible has talked about for years, the engaging and the including in of people to know this great King and to be transformed by Him. And what we talked about last week, to be righted, to be the people that God intends us to be, to live in the world that God intends this world to be. Everything that He has intended from the very beginning, the King, Jesus Christ, is coming to set all things straight. And this announcement of the gospel, the good news over the people for all who embrace it by faith will be transformed the very beginnings and it won't stop until King Jesus reigns over everything and everything is righted that we've ever longed for. That's good news. And then I can imagine at that particular point after announcing that, she would have smiled. Because then in verse 7, she would have looked out over this group of people. Many of the people in there would have been friends of Paul. They would have been ones that when the Jews were kicked out of Rome, many of them fled to Sincrea. They fled to, to Corinth. They were sitting there just longing for their friend to write them a letter. And in writing, she would have smiled at them before she said what she was about ready to say. There would have been, even potentially, we learn in chapter 16, family members that would have been there of Paul. That's kind of crazy. There would have been ones that were not there, but then she said to them, 
to all those in Rome who are loved by God, called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, all of you friends who fled to Corinth, grace to you. All of you that sit here in the shadow of Rome wondering how in the world is this king going to be manifest in the midst of the great Caesar and this empire that's everywhere, grace to you. They would have been sitting there wondering again, not just in a distant way, but Paul, what do you have to say to us that's going to help us to walk through this? What is it you're going to announce to us about the great King Jesus that's going to give us hope in what we need to do? And she just looks at him with a smile. And she says, grace to you and peace. Continuing to smile, verse 8. She says to them, announcing for Paul, I thank my God through Christ Jesus for all of you. Because your faith is proclaimed in all the world, you have a faith that produces obedience, a faith that can't be denied. For God is my witness whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his son that without ceasing I mention you always in my prayers asking that somehow by God's will I may now at last succeed in coming to you. In other words, he says, verse 11, I long to see you that I might impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you. That is that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. In other words, I just want to be with you. Verse 13 I don't want you to be unaware, brothers, that I've often intended to come to you, but thus far been prevented, in order that I may reap some harvest among you as well as among the rest of the Gentiles. I'm under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. Verse 15, so I'm eager to come to preach, to announce, to proclaim, to laud the good news, the gospel, the glad tidings of what God's offered you also in Rome. In other words, I can't wait to get amongst you. Now, here's what's crazy about where he's about ready to turn. This next phrase in verse 16 is going to be something that I think a lot of people don't stop to think about. What does he mean? Okay, Paul, great. That's great. We're, we as Jews, we're really struggling here because we just got kicked out by Claudius. We're wondering again, is Nero going to kick us out again? What are we going to do, Paul? You're coming to bring us good news? Thank God. The slaves that are there wondering, Paul, what are we going to do in the midst of the, the shadow of this great empire? The people that were all a part of this local church again are wondering, Paul, what news do you have for us? In many ways, this church was a good church, but it wasn't getting along. The Jews who had left had become almost in some ways more Jewish. They'd embraced the old covenant in greater ways. And the, the people that had stayed, the Romans or the Greeks or the, the Gentiles, had become less Jewish. And when you brought them back together, things just weren't working. Paul, what are we going to do? And this is what he says in verse 16. For I am not ashamed. It seems strange. We're used to it because we're kind of around church a lot. Why are you saying, I'm not ashamed? I don't get that. What are you talking about? I'm sure in some ways they were thinking, okay, Paul, okay, I, I understand where you've come from. You're, you're kind of trying to help us understand your intentions to come into Rome, that you, you haven't been able to make it yet. But why in the world did you take this positive statement of not being, not longing to, to be able to come to us and to preach the good news to us? And then you enter with this statement and you say in a negative way, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Why? Now, in some ways, I think some people believe what he was doing is he was saying, I'm bold. That's what I am. 
I'm a bold follower of Jesus Christ. I'm not ashamed. I don't feel guilty when I don't talk about the gospel. And in many ways, this is what I thought. And it's not less than that. Because Paul has to write Timothy and tell him, Timothy, quit being timid, man. Like, we have to be bold in regard to the gospel. But I think it's way more than that. This word that he uses for shame is so key to our understanding as followers of Jesus. What does this word shame even mean? The context of shame, I think, tells us a little bit more about the story of Jesus and that Paul is not shamed even though he was following a publicly shamed man. That's crazy to think about, isn't it? The context of all of Christianity is based on a man who got publicly shamed in front of the entire world. Is it any wonder why Paul, when he writes to 1 Corinthians, right, he, or in 1 Corinthians to the Corinthians, he says to them, the Jews don't get this. Why? Because they were longing for the great Messiah who would in no way suffer. How could the Messiah come and suffer? And, and the, to the, the Greeks, they're sitting there wondering, there is no way that God would in any way envelop himself in flesh, especially in such a socially despicable culture. There is no way he would ever do that. And yet Paul is coming to them and he's announcing this reality of Jesus's crucifixion, announcing to them the reality of the resurrection. So Paul, what are you saying in that? I'm not ashamed. The notion, I think, of a crucified, shamefully executed, uh, executed Savior of the world, I think would have been insulting to Roman intelligence. It would have messed with everything of their sense of justice. The thought, I think, was no less troublesome to Jewish people. They're probably sitting there wondering, what in the world are you talking about, Paul? But I think we have to understand the stigma that crucifixion carried with it. To be crucified was to actually be taken through not just an extremely torturous moment, but it was absolutely and utterly disgraceful, and here's the word we're going to use, shameful. In fact, in many ways, we look at it as Americans and we think, oh, how agonizing it must have been, how terrible it must have been. Oh, the blood and the gore and the guts. That's what we think about. But in actuality, the greater reality of what was happening to Jesus at that particular point in that culture, why people didn't want to go through that was not just the pain, but probably in a better way, they didn't want to be shamed like him. Shame was so different at that particular moment. Shame wasn't like in our time. We tend to think of shame in and around guilt. And again, it's not less than that. Let me just say it to you this way. Shame is not less than guilt. In other words, one day, those that stand in front of Jesus Christ that don't know Jesus, that have not come to him by faith, will stand in shame in front of him and will be guilty. There's no doubt whatsoever about it. But there's more to it than that. We also live in a time kind of when people were wrestling with guilt and shame kind of in the 19th century. Along came some, a practice and in many ways championed by guys like Freud and those different ones. And again, it's not that it's bad or good. It's just suddenly now shame also became like feeling bad or low self-esteem. It's not that. The idea of shame has everything to do with being an outcast of the culture in which you live. Not fitting into this world in which you're supposed to fit. And yet the gospel announcement, just think about this, is grabbing an executed man on the far end of the Roman Empire that was crucified on top of a trash heap. And we're saying, that's the man we want to follow. And yet Paul stands in front of him and says, I'm not ashamed. Why, Paul? Like, why are you not ashamed? It doesn't make any sense. 
Now again, in our kind of Western mind, we struggle with that because again, we, we think of things like shame being more guilty or somehow I don't feel bad or my low self-esteem. But Paul has something so much bigger in mind that he's talking about. And given the world, I think, labeling, they would have looked at Paul in many ways, like Paul even confesses that he's a fool, he's a man without honor, he's, he's deserving to be respected poorly, he should receive bad treatment, because why? He should be ashamed, but yet Paul, looking at King Jesus, says, the message I'm about ready to announce to you, you Jewish people who have got kicked out of this, out of this culture because of who you are as Jews, and shamed by being moved out amongst the, the rest of the Gentile world and away from Rome, I'm going to tell you why you shouldn't be ashamed why you shouldn't sit in that place of feeling like you don't fit within something. You Gentiles that don't live up on the hill, that now live down in the river bottoms of the Tiber, that are slaves and people that are in so many ways disrespected by culture and shamed, I have a reason for why you shouldn't sit in shame. And what's the answer to that? He tells us this in the rest of 16. Now just watch this. It is the power of God unto salvation to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Why? Because in that event, that reality of the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus, power broke into our world. Unique power. Nothing like the Roman Empire offered, the peace of Rome, the shalom of Rome. Nothing like that in the least. Something so much greater and something so much bigger happened when the king of all kings, the king of glories, died upon that cross. He didn't just defeat sin. He defeated every aspect of sin. He defeated shame. And in fact, this is the way that I would put it. When Jesus Christ hung upon that cross, he reversed the whole world's order of things and everything that should be shameful now becomes honored and everything that's honored actually in a weird way becomes shamed. In other words, he's looking at these Jewish people and saying, I know you feel shame, but because you are in Jesus and he is the one who did bear our shame on the cross, but he was resurrected in honor and he now stands as King of kings and Lord of lords. He's enthroned at the very right hand of God. He was announced in front of the entire angelic realm and hundreds of people saw this risen Jesus Christ because he is now honored as that and you are in Christ. You too are honored. It doesn't matter what this world says. You are in Christ. In fact, the rest of the way through Romans, he's going to show us in this paradoxical concept, this, this flip-flop world, that all those people that are attaining power and prestige and sex and honor and everything in which this world says is the way to do it, he says in actuality they're outside of Jesus. If you want to know who is shameful, the shameful folks are those not in Christ. That's who it is. Now, how does that apply to our world today? I think for the longest time, Christianity was kind of the in thing. It was, it was okay to be a Christian, and so therefore, you kind of sat honored because you were a, a part of a church or you were a Christian. But now things, you, and I don't know how many of you can feel it, but it's just changing, isn't it? Our world is different. Sometimes we'll portray it as things like, you know, how in the world we're, we're part of a Christian nation. And by the way, let me just say this outright. We're not as much of a Christian nation if you study historically the facts of this whole thing. And so... Please don't, don't say that anymore. No doubt the influence of Christ has been here and there's been powerful movements of Jesus. But I think we're coming to a place now, and this is where us as a church, I just want you to know this, where we're going and, and I believe what God wants to do amongst us. This is why this is so important. And this is why I wanted to teach this letter. 
It's not cool to be a Christian anymore. It's not cool to be a follower of Jesus. And let me just say this. Welcome to the last 2,000 years of history. To be a follower of Jesus was to be one that would join him in bearing that reproach. We didn't stick out as these ones that everyone wanted to be. I mean, my kids were listening to the radio the other day, and I heard a song about the cool kids. I don't even know who was singing it. But we're no longer the cool kids. And in many ways, we are, and we're entering into a world which shames as we begin to now believe in the transforming work of Jesus and the greatness of Jesus to change people's lives, and we're going to now take stands that, that remark out who we are as followers of Jesus, some of it is going to be great news to the world, but there's also going to be very, very bad news to the world. Because we do stand, and we as Christians say that every human being is created in the image of God. They're dignified, they're honored in some way because they're created in the image of God. That's why from the very littlest inside of the womb, we say that abortion is absolutely 100% wrong. And by the way, we're winning that argument. But it goes even past that. That means that the kid that's just born, regardless of who they are, whether they're, they're, their ability level, whether they come from whatever part of the place in the world, and even this, even if they're not Americans, they are just as valuable as we are. They're kids now that we fought long and hard to get rid of abortion, and I believe it's about ready to happen. And now is the church going to champion adoption? Are we going to forego even things like retirement? I mean, I was sitting down the other day, I was thinking, I don't want to adopt any more kids because I will be 63 when my son leaves. And I'm like, man, that's super old. I'm just kidding. But there's just this, I'm kidding, I'm totally kidding. Kind of. But there's just this side of it right where it's like, where are we going to be on that? Are we going to look at people within our culture, no matter their color, no matter their race, no matter their language, and are we going to give them the dignity that God has called us to? See, Paul, when he writes this, in fact, the way that he uses it up there, he talks about the Jew, which is a dignified name for the Jewish people, and the Greek, which is a dignified name. He's saying to them, we now, as a group of people, are called to reverse, to take things and flip them on all kinds of their head, turn them upside down because Jesus' kingdom does not work like any other kingdom. It's a paradox. Everything that people are after in this world, the power and the prestige, Jesus said to people all the time, the first should be last and the last should be first. It's a paradox. It's an upside down world. And if any place should be it, it's us right here. In some ways, I was thinking about it today. I almost want to change the name of our church to the Upside Down World. <laughs> Welcome to the Upside Down World. The place where it doesn't matter where you've come from, what you're about, but the dignity that we have is not found in ourselves. The dignity that we have is not found in the place in the city that we live. The dignity that we have is not based upon our job. The dignity that we have is not our gender. The dignity that we have is not based upon our hair color or our eye color. The dignity that we have has everything to do with one thing. And this is where Paul is going to champion it. The dignity that we have is we're in Christ. That's the honor. I'm just imagining again all these people sitting there, Jew and Gentile, Greek and slave, barbarian, and they're about ready to hear a story of the great King Jesus who is shamed 
But yet through his death and his burial and resurrection, things would never be the same. And almost 2,000 years later, the gospel has spread to the ends of the world. And one day, let me just tell you this. Because he rose from the grave, our king is coming back. So in all the things that they needed, they didn't need to be told, hey, you know what, buck up, camper. Let me give you practical reasons for why it is your life is so great or so awful. What they needed to be told is not that. It's not about being applicational. It's not about somehow telling people everything is going to be okay, psychologizing it. It is looking at people and announcing to them that all is good because King Jesus reigns and he's returning one day in all of his glory to set all things straight. And while this world is a wonderful place to live, it doesn't hold a candle for what God has for it when King Jesus returns. And so therefore, he's looking at them saying, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God unto salvation to the Jew first and also to the Greek. And all God's people said, Amen. Now, in light of that, here's what I want to do. Now, we could sit there, and again, I could give you all kinds of applicational realities, but I, there's a group of people that are about ready to bring down what's called the bread and the cup. It's called the Lord's Supper. Now, the beauty of the Lord's Supper that I love about it, and oh, don't, don't switch back. I still have to use those slides. Please go back. I hope those slides are there. Are they? Yeah, go back to where I'm 1 Corinthians. Talk amongst yourselves, favorite things about Jesus. Well, there we go. Okay. Now, one of the things that's so important about the Lord's Supper is the way that it actually beckons us to this. It beckons us to this reality of who King Jesus is. The reason we're supposed to do it in an ongoing way is because it's to be a remembrance, not just to remind us of the work of Jesus dying on the cross, which was amazing, and our guilt was, our sin was, excuse me, nailed to that tree forever. And that's oftentimes how we look at it, which again, it's not less than that. But let me just say this, it's more than that, because by the time we get to verse 26, we proclaim it, and we keep doing it over and over again until this Lord's death, until what? He comes. Keep doing this. Keep reminding yourself of what you're a part of. Keep sharing the Lord's Supper together in such a way that you remind yourselves that while this criminal that was hung on the cross, that was now then able to bear the wrath of God on our behalf in a very powerful way, sin nailed to that tree, him now dead, buried, and rising again. Keep reminding yourselves of this over and over again because this is the thing we have got to keep in our heads as followers of Jesus. And so... This is what Paul said. The Lord Jesus, in the night when he was betrayed, he took bread. When he'd given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also, he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. In other words, not only don't forget who I am, but don't forget who you are in me. Don't forget. And so I'm going to bring the people forward that are doing this. I'm going to pass this out. And for the next few moments, here's what I want you to do with the people next to you. I want you to talk about why it is that you are not ashamed of the gospel. Now, if you don't know Jesus Christ, let me just say this also, this thing we're about ready to do, it's for those that are not ashamed of the gospel, those that are followers of Jesus, those that understand who King Jesus is. 
If you're somebody in here that's never come to know Jesus, we're not saying that you can't take it or whatever. I'm just telling you, this is a supper that we share together for those that know Jesus. If you're not a good standing in the church that you come from, let me just say this, if you're a guest of ours, we're going to ask you to first go back to your local church and to make things right. Maybe you're visiting us because just things went wrong in your last church. I would say this, please don't take it right now. I don't think this supper is for, again, people that are perfect. That's not what I want to say. But this supper is for people that are seeking to make things right like Jesus is making things right. And so if you, if you need to deal even with sin amongst one another, maybe a spouse or your kids or anything that's happened, now's a great time to remind them, man, please forgive me like Christ has forgiven me. But overall, here's the question. Why is it that we don't need to be ashamed in Jesus Christ? And the next few moments are all yours. Go ahead. Well, let's do this. Let me just say this. Can I have everybody stand up? Can we just honor Jesus by standing to take, to take the bread and the cup together? I'm going to bring Billy up too if he's here. Um, if he's not here, then I'm going to be playing guitar here in a little bit. Let me say this. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed. Now just stop for a second. Betrayal. Who would have ever thought from a night of betrayal that Jesus would be victorious? Why? Because our, our king is paradoxical. He loves to turn things upside down. And he took the bread, and when he given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And so Cornerstone, take and eat together. In the same way also, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Cornerstone, do this in remembrance of King Jesus.